The Conspiracy Podcast contains strong language, sexual situations, adult themes, and violence. Basically all the good stuff. Thanks for listening. and listeners been a while welcome back to conspiracy the podcast where we talk all things gruesome conspiracies cults murders aliens russia just kidding um anyways it's been a really long time but we're back 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 again you know you love us xoxo conspiracy <laughs> I love it. Thank you forgot you, so much. you forgot to say who you were. Oh, you know you love me, Liza Minnelli. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, Lizard the Wizard. I need to think of a, a good nickname for myself, but it's it's just me. It's just Renee. Yeah. Well, I mean, Renee kind of is the ultimate. It could be a drag name. It could be a business lady. Mm-hmm. It could be a lady of the night. It could be a baby of the night. Renee's versatile. All rolled into one. One renewal. One. Re- there we go. And then there's Katie eating tuna, which is Wait. the most alarming thing I've ever seen her do. What? And that encompasses a lot of things. Mm-mm. One part of Guantanamo Bay is just watching Katie eat tuna salad. Exactly. That is my Guantanamo Bay. Tuna salad is like literally the scariest thing that I can imagine putting in my body. Katie, is that a Ray Dunn coffee bar? It is. I did not buy this. My mother bought it. That checks out. Mm-hmm. Karen buys Ray Dunn. I don't know what Ray Dunn is. It's because you're gay. <laughs> yep. Is she like, or is this person uh, like uh, Joanne? This is what all of the writing looks like. So she sells trash cans that say trash, coffee mugs that say coffee, uh, makeup brushes that say get it, girl. Okay. You can get your own coffee mug and your own name on it. Yeah. I I actually have a coffee mug that says Liz that I I got from being in someone's wedding. And I actually drink out of that. Um, and then I got a Halloween one that says Hocus Pocus in purple because I guess she was feeling a little edgy oh, that year. Man. I love it. Um, other than that, there is someone. Now I will say this is exciting. There is someone on TikTok who makes Ray Dunn 
things. Mm-hmm. Um, and she puts them in her purse and she goes and plants them at TJ Maxx's and Marshall's. <laughs> and they sell, they say like filthy things on them. It's like a trash can that says like, come dumpster. Yes, I want one. <laughs> And she just makes it. It looks identical. And, like, I guess Ray Dunn sent her a cease and desist because she straight up was making filthy products in her font. Damn. And then, like, was putting them out for but sale. Did she, she I mean, have but a, did she copyright the font? That's what I'm saying. Does she have a copyright on the font? Because if not, then she can't. I have no idea how it turned out. She never came back on my For You page, and I forgot her username. Um, and I wasn't that invested. But... I really want a Ray Dunn coffee mug that says twat. (laughs) I'll tell you that. So if I ever find her again, I'll be sure to let you know. Yeah, please do. Because that is hilarious. I think to do a copyright on something like that, you have to go really far to prove that you have such a brand identity that people will mistake that. Yeah, she's been famous for a very long time, and everything she makes is white, and the font is always black, and, like, everything is the same shape, everything is the same, and there's always, like, like a coffee mug that says coffee, period, trash Mm. can that says trash, period, like, all her stuff is, quote, unquote, I hate to say it, iconic, like, you know what it is before you get there. Oh, gotcha. So I don't know. So I don't know. But what I do know is I don't want to talk about Ray Dunn when we haven't podcasted in a million years. And I'm so excited to I see know. you guys. I am excited. I am excited to see y'all. I have I have missed y'all and I've missed talking about this kind of stuff because I don't uh, really get to, you know. Right. Well, now that I've left the uh, capitalism world and I'm working in academics, I'm the youngest person in my department by, like, 30 years. But I feel like that's almost kind of fun. Yeah, everyone else is, like, PhD, tenured, they've been at the, like, I think there's, like, four professors that have been at the university longer than I've been alive. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's pretty nice. It's kind of fun. Although I feel like they're lab rat. I think they're trying to figure me out. It's fine. <laughs> they are psychologists. It's fine. Oh, yeah. So they're just gonna trying to have a field day. They're like, tell yeah. us more. How is your mm-hmm. they come, they do. They come to my desk all the time and they're like, so how many years exactly are there between you and your sister? And uh, how would you say that that made you feel? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, but we talk like about fun like it's it's cool and like sometimes we get to sit on their classes and like grade their exams I kind of feel like I'm back in college it's nice oh that's fun so you kind of get to do a little TA stuff yeah it feels like TA it feels secretary okay it feels feels a little bit like I'm like a limited time a limited term lecturer sometimes because I get to proctor exams too that sounds fun honestly that sounds like a really fun career well, it is fun, and now they've gotten rid of masks, so that's interesting. Um, but that means that everyone's coming back to class, so this is a lukewarm take, but I don't hate it because people are actually coming to school. Okay. Yeah, I kind of get it. I think online learning is, is a lot more difficult than people realized before the whole pandemic happened, so... I think it's a, yeah. it's a lot easier to take your education seriously when you're like actually there 
and you can't just dick off and open a Reddit tab and not pay attention to what your teacher is saying. Yeah, and I don't want anyone to think I'm an anti-masker because I'm not. Uh, yeah, my job doesn't do masks, but we had to go to the office manager and, like, submit our vax card in order to not mm. wear a mask. So that does mm-hmm. make me feel a little bit better. Are you back to work in person all full-time? One day a week. And then second week of oh, April. Oh, please. Are you rolling your eyes? I It's Just one day? It's a 45-mile commute. Damn. And then, okay. and then in April, it's going to be two days a week. You've been at home for two years. You know, your car needs to be driven. Yeah, Get your podcast in, you know? I know. That's what I do. I've been listening. This is so terrible because I should be listening to, like, indie podcasts or, like, ind- more independent podcasts like ours. But uh, I've been listening to the Always Sunny podcast. Do I hate it? Ugh. <laughs> I know. I know. I love it. I love it, though. I love them. It's it's like listening to your grumpy uncles talk about stuff they've worked on. I Yeah, I can see where that would be appealing. I listened to the Smartless podcast, which is like the same thing, but for Arrested Development. Oh, I've listened mm. to that podcast. Wait, and that one's actually really good. Wait, what is it called? Smartless. Like, Smartless. Yeah, it's got Jason Bateman and the huh. guy from Will and Grace. I can't remember his name. And Will Arnett. Will Arnett. Which guy from Will and Grace? Will or the other or the gay one? The gay one. I mean, I know the Will gay is gay, I was but about you know, to say, I was gonna say the gay one, but then I was like, that's not gay. The capital G gay one. Yeah. yeah, the capital G gay one. They're good, they're good. Katie, what have you been doing with your time for the last three months? <laughs> Four months? Um, I've been working um a lot you know big girl job got that going on I think I've said to y'all it's it's been difficult because I was thrown into something not knowing really how to do it and no one was there to teach me and I've gotten in trouble for things that I'm like well I don't know how to do it yeah I don't know I just I don't have a really great feeling about this job like I, I don't I don't like it I hate it like I stress about it so much and I've cried over it so much and I've always been the type of person that's like, fuck that. I don't care if I'm making decent money. So I spoke to somebody else who is also a bookkeeper. And it's actually Sean's friend, Brandon's girlfriend. And she is a freelance bookkeeper. So she was giving me all of these ideas. And so essentially I'm I'm going to get QuickBooks certified. And that way I will be like verified and legit. And then she gave me a bunch of websites and um, she said she would help me put my resume out there on these websites to get a freelance bookkeeping gig because that's what I'm trying to go for. That's really that's awesome. Cool. So yeah, I can... and then you'll be able to like set your own rates and stuff. Exactly. And also mm-hmm. you make the typical salaried bookkeeper makes like between 32000 to like 45000 a year. But like a freelance bookkeeper can make way more. Like from what I read, you can charge between like 40 to $60 an hour. And have upwards of like 15 to 20 clients and easily oh, make wow. six figures like if you're really good. So yeah. that's that's what I'm going towards. Um, nice. And you'll still be working from home. So you'll still be able yeah. to like be with the boys. Yes. What are we all drinking? Um, Katie, do you want to go first since you have the coolest mug? Yeah, it's empty now, though. I drank it too fast, but... Well, what was in the Jim Jones mug? Yes, I'm drinking out of a lovely Jim Jones mug with his face on it, and it says "Drink Up," and it's um, 
love it. Um, it was like a vanilla chai hot black tea. Oh, yum. And I'm also made myself a smoothie, so I'm drinking a smoothie. Um, and regular, <laughs> regular old water. All right, Renee, what are you drinking? Got a few things going on. As usual? As usual. So I've got iced coffee with some almond milk and a simple syrup I made from coconut sugar. Oh, I love coconut sugar. I do too. And it makes a really good coconut or a really good um, simple syrup because it stays very liquid, even in the fridge. And it has a little bit of like that malty flavor that brown sugar does. And then I made, because I'm in summer mode already, I made a berry and ginger tea with a little bit of coconut milk and a little bit of um, lime juice. Nice. Yum. It's very good. And then I have some sparkling mineral water also with just like a tiny little bit of the coconut sugar simple syrup apple cider vinegar and lemon wow working on that tummy aren't you working on that digestion got a fancy lineup going on here that was all so artisanal i know it sounded like a whole foods commercial (laughs) (laughs) a whole foods lineup of new beverages for the spring what about you liza water asparagus well on my way here i chugged a a uh, quad iced americano with a splash of oat milk as you should and now i'm drinking a mango dragon fruit refresher with no water sub peach juice and no inclusions and two pumps of raspberry everyone order that at starbucks <laughs> it's so good that's, it is that's <laughs> so the kind of drink that somebody who works at who has worked at starbucks orders because you know it's good every time i go to starbucks well i know literally everyone at every starbucks in my city now because it's a small town mm. not small small but small ish and i was a manager you know so everyone knows like we just know each other anyways so whenever i order they're like oh that's an employee i'm like nope it's an ex-employee but you're close <laughs> what is no <laughs> inclusion um, anyways like none of those crunchy pieces uh, there's no actual oh. flavor to them it's like they're made essentially this is the corporate tea they're made out of food coloring there's no flavor to the fruit pieces in the refresher nice it is dehydrated fruit pieces that's correct but they've been dehydrated and then processed so it's essentially for color are they tasty absolutely do they add anything to my beverage but purple mm-hmm. no so I'm drinking that. All right. All right. In this episode, we're going to be doing something a little different than usual. We're going to do, say, some murders that we're really keen about, you know, that we really like. You could probably say that they're our favorites right now, but, you know, just kind of have to be careful the way that you say it to avoid any copyright infringement. So I'm going (laughs) to go first and my sources for this story, which I will be submitting for the approval of the Conspiracy Society, The Hex House Murder by American Hauntings, The Murder of Nelson Raymeyer by Haunted Salem, and Dark Magic, The 1928 Hex Hollow Murder of Nelson Raymeyer by Oren Gray. So I'm pretty sure you already know what's going to happen. It's still a really interesting story. Trust me. So a little bit of backstory, and I'm going to try and go through this part pretty quick, but you kind of have to know it to understand the story. The existence of what was known as hex magic dated back to the earliest days of the American colonies, specifically the Pennsylvanian German 
or Dutch, as they were often called. So Pennsylvania Dutch, but they were from Germany. Um, there are a great many religious de denominations among German settlers, and there was a common tradition of folk magic that was practiced by all of these different denominations, with the exception of the plain Dutch, a.k.a. the Amish, who rejected folk magic along with everything else fun and good. Folk magic was generally seen as happening on a scale. On one end was powwowing, which had nothing to do with the Native American ceremonial practice. I'm not really sure what the etymology of that word is, but that's what it was called. If you were a powwower, you performed folk healing and you drew your healing power from God or another specific deity. So this was very steeped in white magic right-hand path religious stuff. Generally, powwowers provided cures and relief from illnesses, protection from evil, and the removal of hexes and curses. They were also really good at locating lost objects, animals, and people. They could foretell the future, and they also provided good luck charms. And it was generally believed that anyone could powwow, but members of certain families were especially adept at it. These families passed the traditions down from generation to generation. And the way it usually went is it would go from grandfather to granddaughter to grandson to granddaughter. So it would go like it would skip generations and switch genders, as it were. Interesting. So at the other end of the scale were hexerai, and they practiced witchcraft. Practitioners of this type of black magic drew their power from the devil or other ungodly sources. And then kind of in the middle were what were known as hex doctors, but those were typically powwowers who were also knowledgeable in what Hex or I were doing. So they were like skilled at battling witches and removing curses. And once again, this was like a real thing that was happening in the 18 and 1900s in like where Pennsylvania were they, Dutch. Where were they battling? Like, was it like a legit battle? Like if you went to them and you were like, well, we'll kind of get into it because this is the crux of the story. But you would go to them and you would be like oh, well, I think this person cursed me. I think they're doing black magic. And they would go, okay, here's a chant you can say outside of their house and, like, draw this symbol on their front door and the curse will be gone. Like, stuff like that. Oh, so they were, okay, so they they reversed the black magic. Yeah, it wasn't, the it wasn't like, LARPing. That's exactly, like, how did you know that's what I was thinking about? <laughs> Yeah, no, not like not like that. Little, little more subtle. Okay, continue. Now that I've got that out of the way. So folk magic in general was based around and mostly used within a farming society because of, you know, the time period and the area of the country it took place in. So hexerai were often blamed when cows didn't produce milk, when healthy animals would mysteriously die, or when crops failed. They were commonly suspected of causing illnesses, especially conditions that lingered and caused a person to waste away over time. A witch could also use spells to launch invisible attacks, cause seizures, uh, give the sensation of being pricked or stabbed, or the feeling of being choked or strangled. So needless to say, literally any bad thing that happened was just blamed on a witch. If you oh. trip and fall on your way to the well in the morning, a witch did it. Nice. So yeah. same as in sense. 1690s. <laughs> Crops aren't it, growing. Witches. It's gotta be witches. You looked the wrong way 
at a witch, and now she's cursed all of your cows. I'm having wet dreams about this woman. She's a witch. She's a witch. She and her, she enchanted her titties, and now I can't stop thinking about him. <laughs> yes, the Love Witch, my favorite movie. I love that movie. I need to rewatch that movie. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Shout out to the Love Witch. If you haven't watched that yet, definitely watch it. It's so good. I think it's on Shutter. Maybe not. It's on Amazon Prime, I think, for a dollar. Oh, nice. I should really buy, like, a DVD copy of it because I want to support them. I want them to make more movies. But, yes, watch The Love Witch if you haven't already. It's really good. Powwowers and hex doctors depended on charms, formulas, and incantations passed down through their families, which they often collected into recipe books, which now we would call, like, a book of shadows, containing the collective knowledge of their family line of powwowers. By the middle... 1800s, these homemade volumes were joined by published volumes that came into common usage. Folk healers had always invoked and used the Bible in their magic because there was always like a very strong connection to God. There are a lot of folk magic spells that invoke the Trinity. The most famous and widely read of these books was compiled by a powwower named John George Homan in 1819. As a side business, he published broadsides and books about the occult and medicine aimed at the local German population. He published the most widely read grimoire in America. The compilation of spells, charms, prayers, remedies, and folk medicine was called, I'm going to totally pronounce this wrong because the original is in German, uh, Der Lang Verbogen Frond, or the Bless long, you. I know, The Long Lost Friend was the first oh. book of powwow magic to achieve wide circulation. Aside from being a collection of charms and recipes, the book itself became a talisman. Buyers of the book were told they would be protected from harm merely by carrying it. And in front of each edition was an inscription that read, whoever carries this book is safe from all enemies, visible and invisible. And whoever has this book with him cannot die without the holy corpse of Jesus Christ, nor drown in any water, nor burn up in any fire, nor can any unjust sentence be passed upon him. So help me. Oh. And that's why I have my own copy. Wow. No wonder your life is so exciting. <laughs> it's definitely interesting. But yeah, I will say, I will highly recommend this book. It is shockingly easy to get, but it is it is a good fun interesting read to give you an idea of what powwowers did here's literally one that i opened up to here's a spell i opened up to a cure for the poisonous herb which grows in meadows crush some soot out of the chimney to powder and stir it into a salve with sweet cream spread the salve on plantain leaves and lay it over the poison spot and in 12 hours the poison will be killed so that's just like the kind of folk remedies that are in here where did you get that book from i believe i got it on amazon actually highly recommend okay so now we're getting into the real story so all of that backstory now this is the real story our story starts with a young powwower named john blymeyer who was born in 1895 and learned the art of german folk magic at a young age his family had been powwowers for at least three generations, and starting at the age of seven, he began providing healing remedies and cures. One day, as he was leaving the cigar factory where he worked, an apparently rabid dog began running towards some of his fellow workers. 
Blymeyer approached the dog and spoke some words of a spell. The dog's mouth allegedly stopped foaming and the animal became subdued. Blymeyer patted its head and the animal followed him excitedly for several blocks. Huh. And everyone was amazed at how well he had done. Shortly after this, his luck really kind of took a nosedive. He soon became ill, unable to sleep, work, or do any sort of powwow magic. And he began to believe another practitioner had placed a hex on him, possibly out of jealousy because of how good he was able to subdue that rabid dog. He used several of his own magical charms to try and remove the hex, but he was unsuccessful because they believed it was difficult to remove a hex if you didn't know the identity of who'd placed it. It just makes it a lot harder. You know, I will say that kind of, if I was like in a really old time before like most medias, Mm -hmm. I'd be like, yep, that checks out. That makes sense. It's like casting out a demon. It's easier to cast out the demon, allegedly, if you know who the demon is. Oh, for sure. So then one night, he's having another fitful sleep, and the answer came to him. Just as the clock struck midnight, an owl outside hooted seven times. And it was then that an idea popped in his head that he had been hexed by the spirit of his great-grandfather Jacob, who had been a powwower and the seventh son of a seventh son. Since he could not fight back against the spirit, he decided he would move away from his ancestral home and the cemetery where his great-grandfather was buried, hopefully breaking the spell. And initially it seemed to work. Shortly after he moved, he met a young woman named Lily and they were married, uh, eventually having two children. So it looks like things were getting better, but then both of their children died in infancy. And this led John to once again believe he had been hexed. And so this time, instead of trying to figure it out on his own, he turned to some other powwowers for help. One of them was a man named Andrew Linhart, who convinced him the source of the hex was someone he knew well. And, of course, when you're told that, you are going to immediately become suspicious of everyone around you, which is exactly what happened. And his wife, Lily, started to fear for her safety because a few years before that, one of Linhart's other clients murdered her husband after receiving similar information. Oh, wow. Uh, the client, named Sally Jane Hege, shot her husband, Irving, in bed after Linhart was hired to drive the witches from her home. She didn't believe the treatment worked and was in terrible physical pain. She finally snapped, killed her husband, and then committed suicide in jail. So Lily was like, this seems very familiar. I don't like how this is going to end. So she obtained a judge's order to have John committed to an insane asylum. And the doctors determined he was obsessed with hexes and magic and needed to go to the asylum for treatment. And soon after, Lily was able to file for divorce. And hopefully, I'm not really sure what happened to her, but I hope she lived a great life and married someone else and had a bunch of wonderful children or whatever makes somebody happy in the early 1900s. You'd think it was all good. John's in the asylum. They're like, cool, hexes, we got to keep you here. But after being at the asylum for 48 days, he simply walked out the door one day and vanished. And no one even bothered to look for him. He was just like, Uh, okay, bye. What do you mean no one bothered to look for him? None of the doctors there, or apparently the police, were like even concerned that he had left. They were just like, well, he was able to leave, so I guess he's on his own. So were they in on it then? Okay. It's a weird... It was a weird thing back then. I'm not sure if it applies to asylums, but I know jails were like this, 
where there was kind of this belief of if you escaped, then you were just kind of free. Uh, so naturally, since he's now unencumbered by both his wife and the criminal justice system, he goes back to work at the same cigar factory in 1928. And there he met two other people who also believed they had been hexed by someone. One of them was a 14-year-old named John Curry, who was trapped in an abusive household and felt that a malevolent force was causing the trouble at home. So it's not that dad drinks too much. It's that somebody's hexed your house. And the other man was a farmer named Milton Hess, who had been successful and prosperous until 1926. And then a series of unfortunate events began at their farm where crops failed their cows were like no thanks we don't want to make milk anymore and because of this they lost a large amount of money and they believed that somebody had hexed their entire family and their farm but they didn't know who it could be so since this worked out so well for him last time john blymeyer turned to a well-known powwower in the region named nelly knoll the so-called river witch of marietta which I wish I'd known the story when I was growing up because Damn. that definitely would have been my nickname growing up. I like that, that, that name. Oh, yeah, you were from Marietta, weren't you? Mm-hmm. River Witch of Marietta. River Witch of Marietta. You can just tell people that that's who you are now. I should, yeah. Or I should just say, like, it's my mother. <laughs> I got driven out of town on a rail. Oh, man, my notes are mean. This bitch identified the source of Blymeyer's hex as a member of the Raymeyer family. When Blymeyer asked which of them had cursed him, she told him to hold out his hand. She placed a dollar bill in his palm and removed it. When Blymeyer looked at his hand, an image appeared. It was the face of Nelson Raymeyer, an old powwower whom Noel referred to as the Witch of Raymeyer's Hollow, which kind of makes sense because that's like where he lived. Like, oh, I'm the witch of my home. Me too. I didn't hex anybody. Maybe. So John knew Nelson because Nelson was a distant relative. And when John had been five years old, he became seriously ill. His father and grandfather, unable to cure him, took the child to Nelson, who healed him. So based on that, he wasn't really sure why Nelson would want to harm him or hex him in any way. So he went to see old Nellie again. And she confirmed it was Ray Mayer who had hexed him and added that he was also responsible for the curses on John Curry and Milton Hess. So this is when a plan forms and John tells the other two men what he had learned and that they need to take Ray Mayer's copper copy of the long lost friend and a lock of his hair and bury them both six feet underground in order to get these hexes to stop. Very specific. Yeah. Well, there was a belief that the only, that if you were to obtain somebody's copy of the long lost friend, you could take away a bit of their like magical ability because they wouldn't have that protection on them. So this is like the Bible of the rich, the, the witch community. Wow. Not the rich community. This was like, if you it have like, it, you're good. Yeah. It was like a secondary version of the Bible because they also were like this about the Bible. And then oh, the long lost friend was like the supplement to the Bible. Got it. I, ju- I have questions. Go okay. on. Maybe. Hold on. I'm sure you're going to answer them, but I have why white people questions. Why white people? <laughs> I don't know if I have questions to that, but maybe I might answer some of the other ones. 
So on November 26, both Johns, Blymeyer and Curry, went together to Ray Mayer's Hollow to obtain the needed items. They were driven by Hess's oldest son, Clayton, to the Hollow, but apparently Clayton didn't go with them inside. And while they were on their way there, for some reason, they decided to stop by Nelson's ex-wife's house, uh, who's named Alice. And they were like, hey, where's Nelson? And she goes, oh, well, Nelson's at his house. And they were like, great. So then they went to Nelson's house. I'm still not sure why they did that. It seems really dumb, but, and it does come back to bite them in the ass later, which is great. So they went to Nelson's door and John Blymeyer asked to speak with him for a few minutes. They went into the parlor and Blymeyer asked him questions about the long lost friend and other elements of powwowing, never mentioning, of course, the true reason why they had come to his house. And after they talked for a while, Nelson offered to let them sleep downstairs as it was too late for them to head home. Like, Nelson seems like a really nice guy. And while he slept, the two men looked for his copy of the spell book, but were unable to find it. And they debated on whether or not to try and obtain a lock of his hair since they were already at his house, but finally decided that Raymire was too big for them to hold down while they cut his hair. Oh yeah, I didn't mention it, but Nelson Raymire is like a big dude. Like, definitely over six feet and like, stacked. He's an old man, but he's a really big dude. So after this visit, the two men left in the morning and realized that they were going to need maybe a little more help to pull this job off. So for reinforcements, John Blymeyer told Milton Hess he needed a member of his family to help them subdue Raymeyer. I don't know why Milton didn't just go himself. Instead, him and his wife were like, here, take our 18-year-old son, Wilbert, to help you out. Wilbert. I know. Names back then, man. They were really great. So the next evening, the three of them go to Nelson Raymayer's house again. And once again, he lets them in and they go into the front room. I guess he just thought that they wanted to talk some more. Unfortunately, Raymayer never got the chance to wonder why they had come back for another visit. Because while his back was turned, the men tackled him to the floor and attempted to tie his legs with a rope they had brought with them. And the exact details of what happened next kind of vary slightly depending on which one of the men is telling the story. But during the struggle, Nelson Raymeyer was beaten and strangled to death. It's possible that John Blymeyer intended to kill him once he reached the house that evening. But if he did, he didn't reveal those plans to the other two men, according to what is his name? According to Wilbert and John Curry. And when they realized that Nelson Raymer was dead, they took all of the money in the house, hoping to make it look like a robbery. For some reason, though, they left behind the book and the lock of Nelson's hair, perhaps because they believed the hex was lifted simply because Nelson was dead. Didn't they, but, th- but those were like the things that they needed. Yeah. So that, that was the stuff they were supposed to bury to make this all go away, because otherwise you've just like killed a man for nothing. So the three men doused the body with kerosene and lit it on fire, hoping the flames would spread throughout the house and burn it down. When they left, Raymeyer's body was engulfed in flames, but somehow the fire mysteriously went out. Some believe perhaps the hex doctor was not yet dead when he was set on fire and that he might have moved enough to extinguish the flames, but had been burned too badly to survive. Two days later, a neighbor discovered his body And the shocking crime stunned the community because, like, this is just, like, an old guy who is very nice and friendly and obviously very well-liked. 
His ex-wife Alice told the police about John Blymeyer and John Curry visiting her before they went to see Nelson, and they were soon picked up as suspects because obviously. And as details of the events emerged, newspapers across the country covered the story of the York witchcraft murder with great interest. Every bizarre detail of Blymeyer's hex-obsessed life was described for the public, and when the men went to trial, there were daily reports of the proceedings. Milton Hess received 10 years in prison for being involved, but both John Blymeyer and John Curry ended up receiving life sentences for the murder, and both were eventually paroled and lived uneventful lives, although Curry, the youngest, served in the military during World War II and became a talented artist. So... Yeah, the lasting effects of the Hex murder were widespread, and while the local authorities did not launch an official assault on folk magic in the area, the press and authorities in other parts of the state eventually would. The sensationalist newspaper coverage of the case brought intense scrutiny to folk practices, and they were labeled a form of witchcraft. The press maligned all practitioners of powwowing, even if they only practiced the most benign healing services. So it is actually really, really difficult now to find somebody in the Pennsylvania Dutch community who practices powwowing when it used to be like super widespread. You can still find people in Pennsylvania uh, who are practicing like this specific form of powwowing. Wow. If you find a powwower, then like one, you have to get them to trust you. Because I don't think they really trust outsiders, especially because they don't know if you really want to learn about it or you're just another sensationalist newspaper reporter. But I do know of at least one person from outside the community who was able to get a guy to, like, train her in the different stuff he used. So it's a sad story, but it's very interesting. It reminds me a lot of the Corpsewood Manor murder. So I think that's why I was just going to say that. I think that's why I like it so much. I mean, I don't yeah. like it. I don't like that Nelson was murdered. He's it is not your favorite. <laughs> you just like it. That's why they had they needed three men to subdue this guy. And they had to sneak up on him to do it. Was this man Dolph Lundgren? Who knows? Oh, my future. That's a crazy story. It is. People huh? are wild. Okay, Katie, do you want to go next? Okay, so I'm about to take y'all to another time. We're going to go to uh, Los Angeles, 1981. This is a murder that I'm like, it's, it's, I don't want to say I like it. Like, it's disgusting, but I'm intrigued by it. I'm just going to say a few things. And I want to see if y'all can guess what it is. Um, it involves porn, drugs, and a giant dick. Ice Planet Barbarians? <laughs> yes! <laughs> I knew it would come full circle. It's the Wonderland Murders featuring John Holmes. Ooh, yes. Oh I love God. that podcast. Did love you listen story. to that podcast? No. I was, it was a Wondery podcast, I think. It was so good. And that movie about it, oh my God, also so good. Yeah, I, I saw the movie and I've only been able to watch the movie like once because I think I've said this before, like that the murder scene is like... It's so it's gross. Rough. It's yeah. gross. Um, so, yes, we're going to talk about um, yeah, the Wonderland yeah. murders. Um, I did, I, I, none of this is my information. I just want to put it out there. Um, all my websites just closed and I can't find them again. I apologize. It's like A Interesting. That was one of the websites. Yeah, I, 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 these are not my notes, I promise. I did reword them, though. Does that count? 
Okay, so. Yes. All right, so the Wonderland murders were actually one of the very first recorded crime scenes used in the American court system because the police were like, basically walked into the house and were like, here's a video camera. Let's film these four dead bodies with huge amounts of blood splattered everywhere. But it actually came in handy during the trial um, later. In the mid-afternoon hours of July 1st, 1981, police were called to 8763 Wonderland Avenue after some construction workers nearby heard moaning coming from the house. When the police arrived and got into the house, they discovered a very gruesome crime scene, a scene that has been compared to the Tate-LaBianca murders that happened in 1969 and were committed by the Manson family members. The victims of this awful crime were identified as William Deverall, Ronald Linius, Joy Miller, and Barbara Richardson. And the moaning was coming from the only person who survived the attacks, Susan Linus. These five people made up the Wonderland gang, as they were called to others in the community. The house was known as being a party house, a drug house, and having some characters come in and out of the residence. The Wonderland gang members had some lengthy rap sheets, too. William Deverall had been arrested 13 times prior to the murders, and Ronald Lanius had done time in federal prison for drug smuggling. The gang was pretty stealthy in the ways they did thing in the way that they did things. They would impersonate police officers, stage drug raids, and rob other drug dealers and gang leaders, and then sell slash use the drugs to benefit themselves. So I don't think it's hard to see they probably had some enemies going on. You know. Oh yeah. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the giant penis in the room. That is John Holmes. <laughs> How did John Holmes get involved with the Wonderland Gang? Well, I'm glad you asked. Okay. The Wonderland Gang was also well known for pornography. They had a lot of porn stars come through wanting to buy drugs from them. And I'm sure a few pornos were filmed in the Wonderland house and probably with some members of the gang. John Holmes started hanging around the Wonderland house due to a nasty cocaine habit he developed. And as Holmes's porn career started to dwindle, his habit got worse. If you don't know who John Holmes is slash was, watch Boogie Nights starring Mark Wahlberg to get a better idea of who he was. <laughs> um, John Holmes became a huge porn star in the 70s. His acting skills weren't what made him famous. It was something else he was well known for, his penis. And if you're curious to see how big it was, Google him and his videos, which... I did because I'd actually never seen any of his videos. I don't think I have either. I've only, I'm only familiar with him from Wonderland Murders and uh, Boogie Nights. And I feel like they had to do a penis double or something for Mark like Wahlberg it's a fake and Boogie penis Nights. And Boogie Nights. Yeah, of I course. Think. Mark Wahlberg, I got him. He's nothing. He's tiny. Yeah, he's from Boston. They're all tiny. Speaking of old porn stars with giant penises, uh, Ron Jeremy looks so bad now. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my god. I feel like he's always looks like a creep. Oh, he's always looked like he's climbed out of a dumpster, but like mm-hmm. he looks extra blue. Okay. So John Holmes had a nice package for the industry he was in, but due to the insane amount of drugs he was consuming, it started to cause issues with his ability to keep going, if you know what I mean. His cocaine oh. habit was a $1,500 a day problem. Not only that, working with a coked-out porn star wasn't the most ideal actor, so John Holmes's career began to go down the drain. So what does a failing porn star with a nasty coke habit do to make himself feel better? He starts frequenting the drug dealers more and becomes friends with them. Friends in quotations, because you can never be friends with your drug dealer, okay? 
A lot of drug dealers cut Holmes off due to him not having the funds for his cocaine habit, so the Wonderland gang kind of took him in and fed him drugs for almost free. But he's not only hanging out with the Wonderland gang at this time, he's also become pretty good friends with another well-known drug dealer around the area, Eddie Nash. Compared to the Wonderland gang, Nash was living a lavish life in a pretty sweet house, and Holmes was the main connection between both parties. The Wonderland gang knew Holmes frequented Nash's house, so they hatched a plan. So, you know, you got these typical, like, drug dealers, like us. We're not drug dealers. I'm not saying we're drug dealers, but they were like us, living a normal life. And then you have Eddie Nash, who is very fucking rich. Um, so they knew that John Holmes was a friend with Eddie Nash. So they were like, hey, we have this great idea, y'all. <laughs> Um, and this is what happened. Basically, the Wonderland gang convinced John Holmes to leave a back door to Eddie Nash's house unlocked so they could sneak in one night and rob Mr. Nash. John Holmes did as he was instructed, and this would be the beginning of the end of John Holmes and his life. The Wonderland gang was informed by Holmes that Nash had a hefty stash of drugs, jewelry, and cash on hand that intrigued them very much. So the plan was set in place. On the night of June 29, 1981, four members from the Wonderland house would sneak into the unlocked back door of Eddie Nash's house. They would announce themselves as police officers, handcuff Nash's 300-pound bodyguard, and get to work stealing from him. But of course, these are drug dealers and drug addicts, so things didn't go as planned. While one of them was handcuffing the bodyguard, a gun went off, waking up Eddie Nash. Like, how do you... who? Why would your gun go off if you're, like trying to rob somebody and you're saying that you're a police officer. Also, why did he not wake up when they said they were the police? Like, I don't understand that. Maybe they just weren't very loud. They like whispered it. They're like, we're the police. <laughs> hey, we're the police. To a 300 pound bodyguard. Yeah. Just, they, it's early ASMR. <laughs> hey, we're the police. <laughs> and he was like, oh yeah, handcuff me. He's like, oh, that tingles down my spine. Please handcuff me. Oh my. So Eddie Nash wakes up. He's unaware who the intruders were, but he did fear for his life. So he dropped to his knees and he begged for his life and he opened the safe for them because that's what they were asking him to do. Uh, the, t- the gang took off with heroin, cocaine, and quaaludes, jewelry, and $108,000 in cash. After the police investigated everything, it is estimated that the Wonderland gang gang took off with $1 million in drugs, jewelry, and money from Mr. Eddie Nash. Um, And, of course, Eddie Nash was humiliated and wanted some revenge because, you know, it doesn't really take too long to find out who did it. Because in a twist of coked-out fate, John Holmes was seen wandering around Los Angeles in a piece of jewelry believed to be Eddie Nash's. Nash was informed and his plot for revenge started to form. Nash's plan involved a few of his men and, of course, John Holmes. The plan was to enter the Wonderland house in the early morning hours of July 1st, 1981, go from room to room, and bash in the heads of the occupants in the house. John Holmes was instructed he would be part of the break-in and murders, to which John Holmes was not on board with. But he had no other choice since he had screwed Eddie Nash over. It's July 1st, 1981, um, and Eddie Nash's... I don't know, friends are in the Wonderland house um, because they made it in thanks to John Holmes. Uh, So the first victim to be attacked was actually not even a resident of the house. Barbara Richardson, 22 years old, was actually the girlfriend of housemate David Lynn. 
Richardson was just visiting the Wonderland house that night, but her boyfriend was actually spending the night with a hooker at a motel. Sounds like a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> Richardson was asleep in the downstairs. <laughs> good. Richardson was asleep in the downstairs living room when she was struck in the head by a lead pipe. The intruders then made their way to the downstairs bedroom where they found Ronald and Susan Lioness, husband and wife. Susan was the only surviving victim of the attacks. She was badly beaten oh, and her body sad. had been mutilated. Yeah, sorry. All of this is really gross, like I said. After that, the murderers made their way to the upstairs bedroom where they beat Joy Miller in her bed and then her boyfriend, William Deverall, who suffered massive brain injuries. Neighbors around the Wonderland mm. house told police they heard screams coming from the home, but they just believed it to be another rowdy night with the Wonderland gang. Sounds like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> the wonderland gang sounds like a really fun group of people but they're not yeah, why didn't i think of joining <laughs> um so due to lind not being around that night police quickly went to him for any information on what might have happened it didn't take them long to get a confession out of lind about the nash robbery and how the murderers could be somehow connected to eddie nash the burning question from everyone though where was John Holmes when the murders were taking place? Because at the time, they had no idea that Holmes was actually involved in the murders. Police found a bloodied handprint behind one of the headboards in a bedroom. They were able to determine the handprint belonged to John Holmes. But Holmes had fled to Florida with his girlfriend after the murders took place. Police were able to bring Holmes back to California where they questioned him on the murders and tried to get Holmes to confess to Eddie Nash being involved with the murders. Holmes did not budge, though. He denied having any involvement in the actual murders and told his wife, Sharon, he was forced to go with and witness the murders, but never actually played a role in murdering anybody. Holmes was acquitted in 1982, but spent some time in jail for contempt of court. Police were questioning Holmes for years, all the way up to March 13, 1988, the day John Holmes died from complications from AIDS. He took any information he had about the Wonderland murders and Eddie Nash with him in death. John Holmes was so concerned his well-known penis would be detached from his body after his death and kept it in a jar or at a museum that he made his wife promise to keep an eye on his body and make sure it's all intact before he's cremated. Oh. It is not kept in a jar at a museum. I totally said that wrong. He was so afraid that they would have taken it off of his body and put it in a jar in a museum. Why care? Like, why do you care? If you guys want to take my body and throw it in a lake... <laughs> to be fish food when i'm dead i don't care if you if cat wants to sell me to the military and they strap a vest on me and blow my body up i'm okay with it i'm not there anymore like then, if you guys are like man renee has nice hands let's chop <laughs> off both of her hands and each of us will have one go yes. ahead i'm ex i'm expressly stating my permission Look, like i think i would pick renee's nose only I can pick my nose. It's so nice. Uh, 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 uh. I um, little penis. Listen, he just didn't want anybody to be looking at his penis, okay? In a jar. Um, but I if mean, you I... are interested in um, in maybe having a replica of what John Holmes's giant-sized penis felt like, you could probably buy one at most sex, sex shops. <laughs> um, Bad dragon. Sirit Tokyo Valentino. You could totally do that. <laughs> Just, I've seen them. I've seen the cannons. It's gross. Okay. This this man thinks his penis is more important than Einstein's brain. Uh, it, he did so much cocaine. Okay. He was a really, like, I barely knew anything about him. And he is, like, 
a really bad dude. I'm not sure if it's the lady he and or the woman he ended up marrying, but like his girlfriend at the time of the Wonderland murders was like 16, 17 years old. Mm -hmm. And he like when he got lost all of his money because he kept doing cocaine, he basically like forced her to go out and prostitute herself so that they could afford to live he's an asshole john holmes is an asshole it's almost over so john holmes giant penis he's dead okay (laughs) so police then rated all better for it i'm sorry (laughs) police raided eddie nash's house in hopes of finding any evidence that would connect him to the wonderland murders but they had no luck they did find more than a million dollars in cocaine at his house and so he spent the, the he spent two years in prison for the drugs In 1990, Nash went to trial for planning the murders of Wonderland. His bodyguard was charged with committing the murders, and a hung jury acquitted Nash of any involvement with the murders. In 2000, Nash admitted to sending his guys to the Wonderland house to retrieve stolen items, but he didn't know that anybody was actually going to be killed. Um, Which I think that's a crock of shit, but... Also, you can watch Boogie Nights, even though his name his name is not John Holmes and Boogie Nights. It's what Dickler or whatever. Or oh, that's right. It's like Dick Dickler. Dick Dickler, something like that. I have to look it up. Liz, confirm. I know you've seen Boogie Nights probably recently. <laughs> recently, she watches it every night before she goes um, to bed. Hold on. Oh no, hold wait. On, no, his on. name is Eddie Adams. Where is Dick Dickler coming? Wait. No. What? No. Stop. No, it is his name. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. His teenage busboy name is Eddie Adams, but but he oh. transforms into adult film sensation Dirk Diggler. Not Dickler. Gotcha. Okay. Diggler. Okay. Yeah, that is, that's one of those that's like so tragic and unnecessary. For real. And it, it's one of those where like, yes, should the Wonderland gang have committed the robbery? No, no, but it, it it's one of those where it's like, oh, you punch me in the shoulder, so I'm going to beat your car with a bat. Like, I feel like the punishment is like it escalated, escalated too much. Like you stole money from me, so I'm going to like beat your face in. It's a little extra. Right, exactly. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, just a little but bit. But also don't uh, put a Coke coked out ex-porn star kind of in your like both of them were the wonderland gang and eddie nash using him as like the go-between of like help us out like really he's only known for his penis like that's (laughs) literally it and he has nothing up here no no that's all we've been rotted away with cocaine like, if somebody is desperate for drugs of any kind, they will do anything to get them. Mm-hmm. So if you think they're on your side, they're only on your side until somebody else is like, do this for me and I'll give you drugs. Exactly. Well, that's my story. Liz? Heartwarming tales tonight. Let's well, let's end on bang. <clears throat> I, uh, I wish I could tell you that it was going to get fuzzier. Really? It's a family tale. Um, a fairy tale? It's got... No, it's a, a really tale. Oh, well, listen, it's kind of a fairy tale. So we've got a really large, happy family. Uh, we've got vampires. We've got a school bus. We've got murder. Basically, the formula for Full House is there. 
Um, also, maybe to, like a Twilight fanfic, maybe even. Okay. I could go as far. Okay. All right. Well, <clears throat> on a serious note, my friends, I know you've missed me, but please stop if you have any uh, stomach issues or uh, if you're adverse to um, children being harmed which I mean we all are obviously but if you can't hang don't hang I mean I'm sure Renee and Katie can hold you over I just it's rough it's rough Mm -hmm. do you know about this Renee I do not. I deliberately did not look anything up. I'm shocked. It's kind of famous. Is it? Maybe I've heard it like somewhere else and I just didn't recognize it. Is there? Well, I haven't heard it. So, no. What do you say, Katie? What is it? Is there a name? Yeah, I'll tell you in a second. I'm still building up the anticipation. I'm just kidding. But none of the uh, major podcasts, like mainstream podcasts, have done it. Um, I was trying to like listen to a podcast for inspo. But, and I found a couple, but they're not, they're, there's no mainstream really coverage of this. Um, my sources, if this tells you anything, was uh, the San Francisco Gate and allthatsinteresting.com. Okay. So it's not super well known. This, my friends, is the story of the Wesson Family Massacre. I got a little theatrical with my writing, so I love it. Just uh, buckle up. I was excited to be back. <laughs> <laughs> At more than 300 pounds, well over six feet tall, and with hair cascading past his waist, Marcus Wesson, age 57, is not what people generally think of when they hear the word vampire. But. When the self-proclaimed Cullen stepped out of his home on the afternoon of March 12, 2004, one detail did perfectly fit the image of the undead. He was covered in blood. I know. Ooh, I'm ready. That's a, that's a wasteful vampire. He didn't really think he was a Cullen, by the way. I just wanted to, to say. Did, was he shiny when he stepped outside? glittering in the sunlight shining with blood so uh, this took place in fresno california this is still to date the most gruesome crime that's ever happened there i guess growing up i think i think fresno was like the play like the location of a mary kate and ashley movie so i'm pretty sure that i thought fresno was like la jr but it turns out that fresno is really small like where i live is pretty much as big as fresno yeah i thought fresno was a bigger a bigger place. No, it only has like 510,000 people. Neighbors and members of the Fresno community were unaware of what went on behind the tightly closed doors of the family until that day. Two women, along with their friends and relatives, were frantically shouting in the front yard of the small home. They demanded that their children be released to them. The large man tried to calm the pair of anxious mothers down. However, the neighbors called the police after witnessing the commotion. As the police arrived, they believed it to be a normal child custody dispute. However, uh, upon police arrival, the foreboding man walked back into the house and immediately locked all doors and drew all curtains. 
Okay, hold on. I'm sorry not to interrupt you. I just Googled him. Is this really what he... Is this him? Why did you Google it? I just Googled him. I Why didn't would Google... you do that? I just wanted to see him. Uh, I'm painting a picture. Don't read anything. <laughs> no, I didn't read... no, 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 no. I didn't want to read anything. I just wanted to put a, a face to the to the story. Oh, okay. and... yeah. Is this him? Hold on. Yep. Okay. No, yeah. It's... Okay, continue. I won't... I'm not going to... Upon police anymore. arrival... The man walked back into the house and locked all doors and drew all curtains. The police immediately demanded that he unlock the door and speak to an officer. That's when everyone heard the first gunshot. Within minutes, a series of gunshots pierced the air. The police surrounded the house. That same enormous man, Marcus Wesson, calmly stepped outside into the sunlight, absolutely covered in blood. He was disturbingly quiet as he was ushered into a pair of handcuffs and read his rights. The police were not prepared for what they saw when they entered the home. I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared. Yeah. Upon entrance uh, into a bedroom, they found corpses neatly stacked in a pile. Oh, my God. It took hours to figure out exactly how many there were since they were all tangled. The final count was nine, all under the age of 25, the three youngest under two. Oh, no. All had been shot in the right eye with a 22, which was found in the pile near the hand of the oldest victim. They were all still warm when the police entered. The oldest two victims were 17-year-old Elizabeth Wesson and 25-year-old Sabrina Wesson. The manpire in question is Marcus Wesson. Did you just call him? So I'm going to take you all back to 1946. We're going to work our way back up to the story. I love this in media res Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. I thought, I was like, hmm, it's really gross and awful, so maybe I should, like, say the murder part and then, like, lead into the other parts that are worse than the murder, and then I can circle back and make it less awful. Just, like, pull the Band-Aid off first, and then, like... That was not the Band-Aid. Unfortunately, I think the murder was easier to listen to. Oh, shit. It's fine. Everything's fine. Okay. All right. We're in it now. So it's just going to get worse from here? (laughs) Uh, Born August 22nd, 1946 in Kansas, Marcus's mother was obsessed with religion. Uh, She was a Latter-day Saint. Uh, She forced Mm -hmm. him to do multiple Bible studies a day. And if he complained, his punishments were whippings with nails. Oh, my God. Ow. His father was a physically abusive alcoholic. Go figure. I feel like that's wherever there's a mass killer or like a family killer or whatever those are called. I forget. There's always an abusive alcoholic father. It just is what it is. With his mom's fascination with religion, we can obviously see where um, he would grow up to be messed up. Um However, his father also had abusive homosexual tendencies. Uh, During Marcus Wesson's trial, his childhood friend admitted to being paid to perform oral sex on his father in front of Marcus. 
Ugh. Oh my god. Um, when Marcus was 15, his dad left the family and moved away for 10 years with his nephew that he had a quote relationship with. Ugh. After that, the family moved to Fresno. His mom still stayed with his dad. His dad came back 10 years later and was like, okay, that's over. Um, we're moving to Fresno. And his mom was like, great. And did she know what was going on? Oh, yeah. Well, she was also beating her child for uh, not reading was, the Bible. Yeah. So. That always turns out well. Yeah, we love that. <laughs> okay. Marcus dropped out of high school uh, a year after that. Uh, he then served in the army for two years and dropped out and returned home. He then met Rosemary. Mm. He married her when she was 18 and she had divorced another man uh, who she claims was abusive to be with Marcus. Wait, who, had was, who was 18? Rosemary, who's Marcus's first wife. And she was already divorced at 18? He helped her get divorced from an apparent abusive husband. There's okay. no proof to the abusive part, so that's why I'm saying apparent, because I don't know if Marcus like gaslit her into leaving him or if she really was in a bad spot. I don't know. No one knows. But apparently she was being abused, so he helped her get a divorce and move in with it. They moved in together and got married. She had eight children from her previous marriage when she moved in with Marcus. Hold on, hold on. But she was 18. Uh -huh. This is <sighs> the 60s, so you can probably imagine... Oh, my God. They, okay. they probably were together when she was like, really young. Oh, geez. Yeah. And then is she about to have more with Marcus? Yes. Well, obviously. okay. So <laughs> the details are actually kind of fuzzy. So, like, from the time that Rosemary got married until they had a bunch of grown kids, things are weird. Oh, so God. when Rosemary was 18, I think Marcus was, like, 21 or 22 or something. So that wasn't that weird. Then there was a long time where I don't think she had those kids, but it's not reported anywhere. So they seemed to live a, quote, normal life for a while. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to take you into Marcus's next phase of his life, which is when he wrote the new Bible. Oh, God. Coming full circle. So he wrote a Bible. The yes. New New Testament. The New New. It's new, the new. real Bible, didn't you know? It is actually a Bible where Jesus is a vampire. Mm -hmm. um, Marcus is a vampire. Also, he's God. So Marcus oh. and God are Jesus and God. <laughs> and they're both vampires. So he surmised that both Marcus and Jesus, but only Marcus and Jesus, held the link to eternal life. Mm. Okay. And that drinking blood oh, was go. the key to immortality. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. So this is when he started telling his family that they were all special and that they could refer to him as the Lord. Mm. Oh. So we know that it took a long time to write this Bible because they have their own kids now. And I think he's like 50 or 40 or I don't know. He's older. So some time there's like there's a gap in the, his story, which I'm assuming is when he was like writing the Bible and going crazy and maybe like not having kids. I don't know. Uh, and at this time, this is where it gets a little dicey. At this time, he tells his five year old biological daughter, Elizabeth, mm -mm. that she is to be his wife. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No. When Elizabeth 
<laughs> when Elizabeth turned nine, they had a mock wedding that his real wife um, put on for them. And uh, she gave her husband permission to marry her daughter legally when she turned 15, but that the Lord could do whatever he wanted before that. Is this his biological oh, no. daughter or is this his stepdaughter? This is their child, yes, together. Oh, my God. The gosh. older kids, I think, end up dipping. Oh, God. We'll get to the lineage in a minute. Uh, at the time of the real wedding, which is when Elizabeth is 15, Marcus is 37. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, he will then go on to have 11 children with Elizabeth. Oh, no. By that the time... Is- by the time that she turns 26, she will have had 11 of her father's children. Oh, my God. Sometime during all of this childbirthing, Marcus and Elizabeth move out with their children um, and the son that he shared with Rosemary. But, like, Rosemary and all her kids are, like, not in the picture. And that's oh, really God. all we know. Because Elizabeth was the chosen wife, I oh, guess. God. So that's alarming. Um, so yeah, by the time their childbearing was said and done and they were all settled, they had 18 children with them. A couple of them are Rosemary's. I think 12 of them were hers. And then uh, some more that were from nieces and other siblings. And he was the father of all of them. Oh God. That's Um, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So 18 incest babies. Those poor kids. The daughters all had to wear floor-length, not ankle-length, floor-length dresses and veils over their faces um, because Marcus was the only man they were allowed to see. And their sons had to live separately because they were not allowed to see a woman's body or touch their siblings. But he's allowed to touch them. And do whatever yes. he wants. I was actually just about to ask about the boys because I was like, what does he do with the boy children? Does he just throw he, them in a well? He whips them into oblivion and makes them go to work. Oh, God. Obviously, Marcus could not keep a job. I think that's pretty easy to guess. He doesn't seem like someone who'd be willing to do anything for anyone. Um, so they lived a, quote, nomadic lifestyle. They would squat in abandoned boats warehouses, evicted homes, office parks, etc. The children were not in school and were barely homeschooled. And the children, including sons and all daughters and uh, Elizabeth, were forced to eat out of dumpsters and food kitchens while Marcus, and this is really not an exaggeration, Marcus ate restaurant food and fast food with their welfare money for three meals a day. Mm. So he was the only one allowed to eat food that wasn't from a dumpster or a food kitchen. Because he's the Lord. The Lord wants his whopper. I mean, I I know people who are freegans, and I have dumpster dived. But, like, it was a choice that I made to get cereal out of the CVS dumpster. I feel like maybe they weren't, they probably weren't even smart, like, fun hipster dumpster divers. They probably were just like, okay, I guess I'll go to the nearest trash can, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like, they, they probably didn't know that you can just go to Dunkin' Donuts 
two minutes after they close and get an entire bag of donuts. trash bag full of untouched donuts. Jesus. Do you do that? Yeah, I know. It's like how everyone was dumpster diving at Ulta a few years ago because they were throwing away like whole makeup palettes. So then Ulta came out with a policy that you have to destroy, um, ruin everything you throw away. Um, REI does that too, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, that's I rough. That's such a way. One thing I really liked about Starbucks, and I'll go on, is they literally donated every every piece of their food waste unless it was expired. Yeah, they still do. Every that? single day, Salvation Army came in their Aww. truck and they would pick up the day the food from the day before. That is a good thing about Starbucks. That's about the only good thing. Yeah, except for they're still using like eighty billion plastic cups a day, but it's fine. Exactly. <clears throat> Anyways. Blah. Okay. They were not allowed to have friends. They could not go to sleepovers. They could not attend parties. They could not speak to anyone that was not Marcus or Elizabeth or each other. Oh, wow. Um, but once they all were of age, I'm assuming of age to him, I don't know what that means because he married someone when they were nine. Um, <laughs> so of age is a loose term here, but they were allowed to get jobs once they were of this age, as long as they kept all the family secrets um, and Marcus would often sit in their places of employment because they were usually like fast food and stuff. Oh, God. And he would watch them to make sure they weren't talking. Uh-uh, I'd be talking. And, of course, their paychecks went straight to him. I'd go up to somebody in the back room and I'd be like, hey, listen. Yeah, I Help would be. Me. Like, if I were to talk about, I would take one of those, like, Sharpie or like the like the sour cream gun, and I would just write help <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> like I know it's not funny, but like I feel like these kids. Well, I mean, they were born into that. They were raised like that. They weren't in school. They thought that their lives were normal. They had no idea. We'll get to that later. But like on trial, they were like, he didn't do anything wrong. Wow. Like what? Okay. Anyways, um. So yeah, their paychecks went straight to Marcus. But not Elizabeth, of course, because women can't have shit. Um, He also told them that all cops are the devil and that if anyone from the police or the government caught them, um, that they were all going to commit suicide because that would mean that Armageddon was happening and they were all going to live forever. Oh, he was trying real hard. I was just about to, like, be like, oh, broken clocks, right? Twice in a day. But, um... He was almost correct. Yeah. Like. <laughs> A-C-A. Ooh, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, wait. No, no, no. I'm dead. <laughs> Further reinforcing the Anne Rice lifestyle. <sighs> Weston had also purchased a dozen antique caskets <laughs> for the family months wow. before the massacre, as well as a school bus. He had claimed that the funeral items were used, um, he was going to reclaim them um, for beds and furniture. This was true. He did use them as furniture, except he left out the part where he took all the seats and safety items out of the school bus, uh, inserted the coffins, and made the children live in the coffins, in the school bus, in the backyard of the shack that he lived in. Look, this would be, like, really cool and goth if it wasn't so sad and terrible. Right. Like, I would, like, my friend that does my hair here, she has a, a bus, and it's called, like, the 260, that's our area code, a zip, uh, the 260 hair bus, 
Uh-huh. And it's like cute in Boho and Gotham, whatever. You can go in there and get your hair done. Super fun. It's not open yet, but I'm excited. But like I would do something like that. Like a like a like a goth record store on wheels, like an Airbnb goth school bus. I would stay there. I would sleep in a coffin in a school bus. Yeah. I would. That's a great idea, y'all. Thanks. However, not this guy. <laughs> no. Like if you were just to be like, oh yeah, there's this cool family where uh the dad thinks he's a vampire and they live in a cool goth bus where they all sleep in coffins. Right. Like that's the original that's... original movie. When I was gonna date with a vampire, I've seen it. <laughs> I love that one. Me too. It's one. almost as good as Phantom of the Megaplex, but not quite. I was always um Oh, I can't remember the name of it. The one about rollerblading. Oh my god. Yes. Brink. Yes. I knew it was like five letters that started with B, but I couldn't think of it. uh, My panic movie is Motocrossed. Oh, I, yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. And I really mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think I watched that. Anyways. I, uh, yeah. Anyways, so he made them all sleep in uh, coffins in a school bus outside where he got to sleep in his home. Oh, God. So that's nice. Um, once again, he kept the boys and girls separated. So the girls slept on the bus, the boys slept in a shack. Mm. Um, so it turns out, as you can imagine, that uh, Wesson's sons had a completely different experience than his daughters. Um, and actually, t- on the trial, it one of the sons said, he's the best dad that anybody could ever have, and I miss him so much. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And one of his other sons, Serafino, said, um, there's no way he's a killer. He looks dangerous, but he's such a gentle guy. I just can't believe that he would do that. Oh my god, that's so sad. That it's really so is. crazy. It is insane. Um, so yeah, the boys did manual labor and um did all the man things when they got older while the girls were obligated to perform oral sex, um, regular sex with Marcus, all kinds of sex. And uh keep they bathed him. Ew, they they oh fed god. him, they hand fed him. Um, they they washed his hands and feet. They they redid it. They twisted his dreads for him once a week. Jesus. Uh, took care of like everything. Uh, they would help him in the shower. He didn't do. He literally didn't do anything for himself at all. By That's, the end of it. So he just made his own cabal of sex slaves. Essentially. So wow. Kiana and Sabrina, two of his daughters from Elizabeth, who's also his daughter, daughter. Uh, were also mothers to his children. Uh, so at the end of the day, as the patriarch, Marcus Wesson was the father slash grandfather slash uncle of all 18 of his progeny. Oh, my God. He maintained an incestuous relationship with his daughters, Kiani and Sabrina, his nieces, Rosa, Sophina, and Ruby, um, as well as his first stepdaughter, Elizabeth. He also privately married two other of his daughters and three of his nieces. 
and produced a number of children with those child brides as well. A few of them not making it. He's not able to legally marry them, though. Right? Right. Mm -hmm. He's only, I think he only ever legally married Elizabeth, and um, she was his stepdaughter, technically, I think, Elizabeth was, is what I gathered, and the mom wrote permission when she was, like, 14 or 15. So sorry, friends, we're just getting started. One of the nieces, Ruby, testified that Marcus began molesting her at the age of seven. Oh, my God. Uh, She said that Wesson had reassured her that the sexual abuse, which he called loving, was the father's way to show affection to his daughter. By the time she was 13, Weston informed her that she was um, of the age to marry him and that God wants um, his Lord to have more than one wife. He also emphasized that God's people are becoming extinct and we need to preserve his children forever. No. This led to Ruby having one child with him, a baby boy named Aviv. Around this time, uh, Weston became a vehement supporter of the Branch Davidian leader, David Koresh, our fave. Makes sense. Um, who had multiple wives and children. As, yep. we, as we know, this is no news to our followers, uh, Koresh and nearly 80 of his followers died in a fire at their Waco, mm-hmm. Texas complex um, after a 51-day siege by federal agents in 1993. So while watching television accounts of the siege weston told his children this is exactly how the world is attacking god's people this man is just like me he was trying to make children for the lord and now we need to make more children for the lord oh my god no the fact that there were so many so, of them yeah i think some of the later children and nobody like, just decided to dip out one day and go get, like mm-hmm. there's so many of them they thought it was normal they thought they were the good ones they thought, they thought that they were the good people Oh, my gosh. Good Lord. That's absolutely bizarre. Right. Um, some other of Marcus's daughters and nieces, Kiani and Rosa, insisted that the women in the household were lucky and happy. They had claimed that whatever happened in the home was by agreement and talk. And that's a quote. Uh, it was totally by choice. We had a democratic family. There was never any rape. Nothing was ever forced on us. Like, um, a seven-year-old can't decide. Exactly. Exactly. Like, wow. When you, when you are think- too young to even realize what is going on in your world every, almost every single day, that's not consent, and that's not agreement, and that's not, like, okay, yeah, this is fine. Yeah, I don't think they know what a lot of those words mean. Well, they were never in school, so probably not. On that fateful day in March of 2004, when Sofina, Solario, and Ruby Ortiz, which were his nieces, uh, came to knock on the door of the Wesson clan home to demand they let their children out because they had had enough and they were going to leave. Mm. They They had heard that Marcus had decided that too many people had seen the amount of them and that it was time for them to move to Washington State. Um, So not because of what was going on in the home, but because they were afraid that they were going to lose contact with their children. Uh, Sophia and Ruby came to the house. I guess they were allowed to leave, and they demanded custody of their sons. What is really interesting is 
Marcus never had a fingerprint on the gun. There was no gunshot residue on him at all because the whole plan was for Elizabeth and Sabrina because they were the oldest. Um, They were to carry out the plan of uh, shooting each child that still lived at home in the eye and then the last one would take their own life so as soon as as soon as the cops came that's exactly what they did it was the nine youngest kids still in the house um and then elizabeth was the one who had to kill sabrina and then shoot herself holy shit and then marcus just went in and piled them up on top of each other that's somehow worse yeah yep i know somehow it is worse yes i know but there is news there is news what is uh, it? at his trial marcus wesson was sentenced to death by lethal injection however oh. i do think he's still alive he's in san quentin state prison on death row i'm not sure if he's dead or not but he's supposed to die by lethal injection so the only people who survived were the two moms, right? Or like the two adult women. So there were two adult women and they had all the all the sons, most of the sons survived, the older sons. Oh, the okay. Their okay. nieces. Okay. And that's it. And Rosemary's original eight children from before he started procreating. Jesus. There were nine deaths which means that there was like five or six that still live so the boys and the two niece the older nieces that were also his daughters ruby and seraphina wow that is that is a crazy story i was shooketh i saw it like maybe a year ago on a tiktok and it was like true crime stories you probably never heard about that will keep you up at night. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, she was right. <laughs> I've never heard of it and it will keep me up at night. It's just the wildest, nastiest thing. Like, all none of the kids realized what was going on. There was zero consent anywhere, even though they thought that there was. He literally was able to close his eyes at night knowing that every single thing he's ever done is for himself, is twisted, is 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 fake, it's phony. Like, you're eating restaurant meals and in and out while your kids are eating out of the dumpster. Also, I don't you think have God would have wanted that. No. Or, I don't think Jesus would have wanted that. Sorry. No. No. I might be a little uh, rusty on my biblical knowledge, but I don't think I saw impregnate everyone you're related to and eat in and out until they kill themselves i think i missed that chapter it might be in one of like the lost books like maybe it's somewhere in the book of enoch oh, one of the catholic ones that makes sense They're crazy. No, it's yeah in the one that he was writing maccabees that's just it it's always bonkers to me hearing stories like this and hearing like similar cults like waco where it's like how at some point people have to be like no like right you know this is not okay 
Right. Well, if they're brainwashed and they, and that's like you said, they were brought up on it or just like they have nobody else and this is what they have. Like we're, I mean, none of us are at a point in our life. I feel like we're really like, this person's saying some really good shit. I mean, QAnon is, can't wait for that documentary to come out. I mean, oh yeah, our modern cult right now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, it's people do a lot of crazy things in the name of religion or their own religion or whatever. Like, I won't even blame Christianity for this because they had nothing to do with it. Except for, like, literally the name's God and Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Everything else is just not factual. Well, okay, that's for a full the well. No, yeah. I need to take <laughs> those words back. Uh, there's nothing canon about yeah. what he did after literally the words God, Lord, Bible, mm-hmm. and eternal life. That's it. That's where... He just took it on uh, a path of its own. It's like he wrote a fanfic in which Stephanie Meyer, the author of Twilight, and (laughs) Satan became an incestuous MLM group. Oh, God. Yeah, if you make your own downline, you never have to worry about your downline. That's so true. Sorry that that was so nasty and gross, but it's a story that I feel needs to be told because, like, why isn't he dead yet? Is he dead? Can you Google that? Is he dead? When I when I first heard this, he was still alive. No, he's still alive. Yep. I think. Wait, is he? Yep, he's still alive. He's terrifying looking. I'm, have <laughs> you seen like, a full? Did you see the full body photo of him? No, I didn't know there was a full body uh-uh. photo. Scary. Wow. Thank thank you for sharing this heartwarming family tale with us, Liz. Thank you so much. Tune in next week on the 700 Club to learn who I'm going to help next. Um, anywho, so I would like to know if anyone has talked to Marcus Wesson, but what I really would like to know, and this is the soapbox I was about to stand on, is like if they're letting these kids work, that means the kids had W-2s. If the kids had W-2s, that means they all have the same last name and address. If they all have the same last name and address, why is no one in the welfare money, the amount of welfare money, why is no one putting one plus one equals two together and like realizing that there's one parent and that's it? Because these government agencies don't actually pay attention to shit. Um, I would say it's probably because he's pro they might not have listed him on the birth certificates of any of the like children he had with his daughters. Well, I know there but was a lot probably- of home births, but if that's the case, how do the kids get jobs? Exactly. They still have to have social security numbers. Oh yeah. I just think that like, they, according to the government, they're probably children of single mothers. And what they're like, a lot of them are the same yeah. mother, the one lady. I don't know. I can't think about it. It hurts my brain. So let's close this puppy out. I got to get to Taco Bell. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us on this journey of three just amazing stories to keep you up at night, wondering where humanity went wrong. And (laughs) maybe God should have destroyed us all with a flood and, and not made an ark to keep some of us alive. 
Don't worry, but... he's working through Putin to achieve that. <laughs> I know, right? I, <laughs> you know, maybe just maybe this time when Pat Robertson uh, predicts the end of the world, maybe he'll be right this time. Who and knows? It's not but... Pat Robertson, it's Rob Pattinson as the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the batman movie is i haven't seen it yet no spoilers i haven't either it's so hot go on i've heard it is i i am i'm a fan of both batman and our pats so um if you are also a fan of batman and murder please feel free to follow us on instagram at conspiracy podcast atl or on twitter where we post sometimes and that is the conspiracy um i would say follow us on instagram but or I follow our personals on Instagram, but Katie's like never on Instagram because I deleted the entire app from my phone. I have no social media at all. Katie so if you want, cool for us. so if you want to see Katie, here's her address. Just <laughs> <laughs> here's her uh, daily schedule, and um, this is the part Good. where her her kids play sports. Um, and I stand in front of my windows without a shirt on at these hours of the day. It's, it's like a free show work. every two hours. <laughs> I just go up but, to the window and I'm like, Woo! but please feel free to slip a tip into the mailbox. If you like what you're seeing, oh my but, God. For, <laughs> but for real, please join us next time. Where we'll be talking about more wonderful macabre things together the way we prefer it. And stay safe, as always, because the world is crazy, but sometimes you can get together with friends. and The world is crazy, but it's not as crazy as vampire mega dads. Nope. (laughs) Thank God. Thank God none of us have vampire mega dads. No, God. Speak for yourself. No. (laughs) For yourself? Jesus. I'm so happy to see you guys, and I love you, and I just can't wait to see you guys again. Next time I should have a webcam, I think. Maybe. You should. You should. Oh, I awesome. I'll speak to my producer. <laughs> All right, everybody. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Anybody, I would like to live. I just want to do God's will. Just to go. But I want you to know tonight.